Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Happy holidays! <laughs> yes, do you have your holiday tree carcass up? Uh, I don't own a single holiday decoration. <laughs> so no that just came back to me as i was asking you the question i remembered <laughs> this from maybe last christmas is this our second christmas season on the podcast yes that's crazy in and of itself i feel like if i ever have a home or more permanent residence but the idea of like storing a christmas tree in my apartment is insane <laughs> Well, and I know I could one. buy a real one, yeah. but who who has time for that? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I just went and got a real Christmas tree. And now we break it into two parts. One weekend is get the tree and get it up and water it. And the second weekend is actually decorate. <laughs> mm, that's smart. So I have two holiday specials that I've watched so far this year. Mm -hmm. The first is Matt Rogers' Have You Heard of Christmas? Okay. So funny. (laughs) He's a comedian and podcaster, and he wrote all new Christmas songs, Mm. and they're so funny. (laughs) I'll have to check that out. The one, he's like, have you heard of Christmas? And he's like singing about Christmas. And he's like, it's the day when Jesus died. Have you heard of Christmas? <laughs> uh, he sings a song from the perspective of the hottest woman in Whoville. <laughs> um, there's just a lot of great, uh, great moments. Very funny. I'll have to check that out. And it reminded me, so as we decorated the tree yesterday, the kids are unpacking Christmas ornaments. And this is what a bad, I mean, I'm not Christian really anyway, but I don't know, like ethnically I'm Christian, right? And so as a bad ethnic Christian, my kids don't know fuck about Jesus, like nothing. (laughs) They know (laughs) that Jesus was a maybe real person and that's pretty much it so they're unpacking the ornaments and my oldest pulls out an angel ornament and she asked my husband if it was jesus and we both kind of laughed (laughs) and then she looked a little hurt and so i was like we're not laughing at you (laughs) we're laughing at ourselves and our inability to teach you even the most basic information about the Christian holiday Christmas. (laughs) And she's like, well, I mean, you know, I know that Jesus has like long flowy hair and like to dress in robes. And it's like, (laughs) okay, well, yeah, that's true. (laughs) But then I'm thinking, my kids literally don't know anything about Jesus. They made a nativity scene out of clay just because they like the the scene of it they've seen it in places and they thought that we should have one and they like the kind of vibe the design vibe of it right but they have no idea about 
the Christmas story. And she even said to me, oh, this over here, this can be the house. And this over here, this will be the barn. And I was like, so there's actually no house in the story at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, wow. And so I feel equal parts kind of proud and also embarrassed equal equally proud and embarrassed so in that vein the other holiday special that i watched yes was insane and i couldn't look away yes and it was dolly parton's smoky mountain christmas whatever it came out this weekend or last week or something oh wow it's new because i feel like i've heard that title before yeah it's new Ooh. and it is (laughs) crazy how so (laughs) well it's a special about making a special (laughs) where she's playing herself and then like the ghost version of willie nelson appears at one point and like the ghost version of uh, billy ray cyrus there's a song where she's fully in a red sequin bodysuit singing to the devil to go to hell go to hell go to hell in a handbasket what oh my god she sings with her sisters in pig latin um oh my god that sounds like a crazy hot delightful mess it was an absolute mess that was so good (laughs) and so bad wow but the one Thing that we have watched so far this year well we watched home alone because you have to but we watched the new spirited movie on apple plus have you seen ads oh i have not watched so it was so much better than i expected Ooh. i like a lot of things that will ferrell is in and i kind of like begrudgingly really like Ryan Reynolds. I don't want to like him, but I like most of his movies in spite of that fact. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, well, this is interesting, you know, but I don't love musicals and the runtime is over two hours, which for a Christmas movie just seems really long, right? But it was really good. And it's kind of loosely based on A Christmas Carol, which is my all-time favorite Christmas story so I would give it a a good recommend and then listen to the soundtrack the soundtrack has a lot of good songs in it I'll watch next in my queue I believe is Muppets Christmas Carol Mm. yeah I've been having a nostalgia crave for some Muppet content I haven't seen them in decades that's a solid one for sure the 12 days of Christmas with John Denver personal favorite i mean favorite muppet muppet 12 days of christmas with john denver (laughs) who's your favorite muppet uh i think we've talked about this before like are muppets in sesame street the same universe (laughs) but let's say we keep sesame street out of it my favorite muppet would have to be this is taking me way too long but i want to get it right just right i mean i feel like it's gonzo for some reason He's the one who's jumping to mind. Not like my favorite, but the one I identify with most. <laughs> Gonzo was my favorite as a child. <laughs> also, 
Piggy, for sure. I mean, she's an icon. She's a legend. (laughs) And Scooter. Yeah. Probably no one's favorite, but I like Scooter a lot. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I really liked the the asshole um, guys who sat in the balcony, too, and (laughs) criticized everything. (laughs) Sesame Street was Ernie all the way. Yeah, for sure. Although, I did really like Snuffleupagus. I mean, I was a big Snuffleupagus fan. They freaked me out a little, but I did like them. <laughs> but nobody could... I don't I don't know their gender, so that's why I'm saying they. Yeah, I mean, I was so bitter that they had to be a secret, which yeah, I know cause... now they're not. They, they, they got rid of that. I don't know when. Have we talked about this before? No, because wasn't it just he was he they were like Big Bird's imaginary friend. Yeah, but then at some point, either someone wrote in and said this, or I don't know how it came to be, but they decided that this idea of having a friend who had to be kept secret was not a great thing for kids who you're also at the same time trying to teach about not keeping secrets Mm. (laughs) related to sexual abuse. And so Snuffleupagus became kind of a known member of the community and it wasn't a secret anymore or invisible. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. So two more cartoon things that get progressively worse as we transition into this episode. (laughs) You're going to have to go far from here. (laughs) One, the heffalumps and woozles freaked me out out from winnie the pooh i never even heard of those oh they were so scary and then similarly how they made the horror movie winnie the pooh blood and honey what because it entered the public domain that's a horror movie coming out this year or next year oh my god <laughs> um this same company is now making a horror a horror movie Bambi. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Bambi without any different spin or treatment is kind of a horror movie to begin with. That opening sequence like fucked up <laughs> so many people. <laughs> but Bambi is going to be the killer. Oh my god. Well, I mean, seeing your mom murdered can do that to people. Yeah, just like Batman. Yikes. And maybe Bambi will be a cannibal. ding 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 I mean I'll give it to you for effort that was a world class effort Andrew yeah it's hard to segue from Christmas to cannibalism but we will try anything here (laughs) if we ever have merch that would be a funny (laughs) t-shirt it's hard to segue from Christmas to cannibalism (laughs) I like it. We need to get back on our merch. That's on our to-do list. Are you ready? We have a lot to talk about. This surprising case. Yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot. All right. Once upon a time in the Shire of East Lothian, along the east coast of Scotland, just a stone's throw from Edinburgh, a bonnie bairn was born. Alexander Bean was the son of working-class parents who supported the family through various trades. 
like ditch digging and hedge pruning and things of manual labor. And Alexander, or Sawney as he was known to his friends, was raised to continue the family business. But Sawney was, by all accounts, a bit work shy. He preferred a hustle to a hard day's work in a trench, which, I mean, fair enough. Yeah, ditch digging I wouldn't doesn't wanna... sound like any fun. It's like I've dug one ditch in my <laughs> life on the farm, and I would never want to do that again. Yeah. So when Sawney was in his late teens, he met a woman named Agnes Douglas. Sonny and Agnes really clicked. He was lazy and morally bankrupt. Agnes, or Black Agnes as she was known, was vicious and possibly a practicing witch. A match made in hell or wherever. So I'm pausing here now to call a flag on the play, which mentioned number one. Yeah, we've learned through this podcast that Oftentimes, when a woman has a reputation as being a witch, she is being victim-blamed. <laughs> so, Sonny and Black Agnes decided to leave East Lothian with all of its judgments, expectations, and the ever-present threat of witch hunts. And they headed west and lived for a period as burglars and highwaymen robbing travelers along the desolate country roads away from urban centers. They traveled by night and generally avoided the society of other people. After a journey of about 120 miles, or about 195 kilometers, from the coast to the other coast in Scotland, the couple settled in a deep stream cavern near Benane Head, at the northern end of Ballantrae Bay. The cave opening was on a craggy and remote part of the coast, and it's remote even today. The cave's opening was completely blocked by water at high tide, and it fed into a cavern 200 yards or about 180 meters deep. The two found it was the perfect hideout and home base for their nightly raids. Sawney and Black Agnes lived in this subterranean dwelling for nearly 25 years raising six daughters and eight sons, who in turn produced 14 granddaughters and 18 grandsons, together. Again, no contact with the outside world, so the sons and daughters, together, produced 32 grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that happened. But back to their settlement on Ballantrae Bay. Once the duo stopped roaming from place to place, and perhaps even before, their nightly hijinks escalated from literal highway robbery to murder. At the time, the penalty for robbery with violence was death. And without the anonymity of constant movement, they had to prevent detection at all costs. At some point during one of their nightly attacks, whether because of a sick curiosity or out of necessity, no one knows, Sonny and Agnes cannibalized their first victim. As their family grew and with more mouths to feed, this became the couple's standard practice. In time, they included their children in their nighttime activities and trained them to assist in their crimes. The clan would sometimes ambush individuals and other times small groups. And as the disappearances became more numerous, 
the denizens of the surrounding villages became suspicious that they were connected in some way. Search parties were sent variously into the Galloway countryside looking for a band of killers. But because of the natural features of the cave that I mentioned earlier, no one suspected that it could even be inhabited. Yeah. But one night, the clan was out on the hunt, and they chose to attack a man and his wife as they traveled home from a nearby fair. The two were on a horse, which that in and of itself had never stopped the clan before. But what they didn't know is that the man had military combat training and he was armed with a sword and a pistol. So the man was able to repel the clan, but as he started to charge away to freedom, his wife fell from the horse. She was quickly attacked by the group and killed. Her throat was slit and the group reportedly began to disembowel her right there in the forest. As the husband returned to help his wife and probably face a similar fate, a large group of revelers from the same fair they had been at before came upon the scene. And at this point, more evenly matched by the size of the group, the clan quickly retreated into the darkness and eventually the safety of their cave. The woman obviously was well beyond help, but the man lived and he recounted to the crowd and later to the magistrate everything that had happened and he was able to give descriptions of their attackers. Word was quickly sent to King James, and within a week, a posse of about 400 people with bloodhounds was unleashed on the countryside in search of the murderous clan. The bloodhounds quickly led searchers to the mouth of the cave, but again, searchers believed that the cave was uninhabitable. The dogs were insistent, though, so the search party pushed into the cave with torches. And once deeper inside, they came upon a truly grisly scene. The Bean clan of children and inbred grandchildren were surrounded by human body parts hung around the dwelling as if in a butcher shop, plus barrels of pickled remains in various stages of preservation. There were also piles upon piles of personal effects and family heirlooms, jewelry, and things like that that had belonged to their victims. They were taken immediately in chains to the old Tollbooth Jail in Edinburgh and then transferred to Leith, where they were promptly executed without trial because people saw them as subhuman and unfit even for a trial. Mm Mm-hmm. The men and boys of the clan were castrated, relieved of their hands and feet, to put it politely, and left to exsanguinate. Sawney reportedly shouted as he bled to death, quote, it isn't over, it will never be over, end quote. I hate my brain. <laughs> I don't know if you know the Katy Perry song, just because it's over doesn't mean it's really over, and if you say it's over, then it's really over. <laughs> Maybe this was her inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I will assume that is fact, and I will ask no further questions. <laughs> well, and for the poor Bean clan, if you could call them that, it wasn't over. The women and the girls of the clan, as was custom at the time, were chained to stakes and burned to death. Ugh. Yeah. 
All in all, the Klan is said to have had up to a thousand victims over the course of 25 years. Due to their cannibalism, the true number is not known for certain. But some say Sonny Bean and his family were the first serial killers of Scotland, and perhaps the worst ever serial killers in Great Britain. Just ghastly, right? Yeah, just a tidbit that I looked up Mm. because I was curious. In the 16th century, there were bears and wolves. There are no longer. The wolves were made extinct in the British Isles in 1720. Because mm. I was just curious, like, because now they their biggest apex predator is the badger. So <laughs> it's like, okay, so if all these people were going missing, what would you assume? So there were animals like wolves and bears at this time. <laughs> well, and it's a good point because the Bean Clan intentionally took various body parts and threw them into the bay far away from the mouth of their cave at different times to give the impression that these people had in fact been the victim of wild animals. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that was definitely working in their favor is that it's not like now if a thousand people went missing, the obvious conclusion would be that it was a person doing it. At at that time, there were predators who were capable of killing humans and they fed into that so you might be wondering andrew why the name sawny bean is not as well known at least in the united states as the name jack the ripper or any of the other super notorious serial killers of all time and to that i would say there's just a tiny little matter of veracity Did any of this ever even happen? (laughs) Well, the consensus among historians about Sonny Bean is that Sonny Bean is a myth. And there are a lot of reasons that they use to support this conclusion. First, and maybe most importantly, is the fact that there are no records anywhere at any time about the capture of a clan, the execution of a clan the marching of a clan of cannibals from the West Coast to the East Coast. There's no record of any of this at all. And even more vexing is the fact that different versions of the story put the timing as potentially during the reign of James I of Scotland between 1406 and 1437, or sometimes nearly two centuries later during the reign of James VI of Scotland between 1567 and 1625. Lastly, historians point out that the complete and utter disappearance of up to a thousand people in a small corner of Scotland would have surely been mentioned in contemporary records and personal correspondence around that time. Mm -hmm. Even if they thought that this was the work of bears or wolves or who knows what, people would have been talking about it. But no such evidence has ever been found. And people have looked. (laughs) Believe me. (laughs) There is a complete void where the world's most fiendish serial killer and cannibal should be in terms of public records. So then you might be wondering, why the legend? Where the fuck does this come from? It's so specific and consistent in some ways but so ghastly and bizarre and others that this has really left people wondering, how did this come about? And I think 
for hundreds of years, part of the proof that it must be true is the fact that it was so specific and so bizarre, right? Yeah, if everybody knows it. Right. And the main kind of points of it are very similar. So when I was doing my telling, I kind of told one version of this, but I was vague when I talked about King James, which King James, there were many in Scotland. Um, And the end of this, some versions of it have them kind of marching across the country to their death, but other versions have the, the search party blocking them in the cave and blowing up the cave and suffocating them all to death. So, you know, there are some variations, but there's just so much consistency that it begs the question, where did this come from? In 1975, author Ronald Holmes put forth the theory that the legend was devised and planted in broadsheets, which were like the TMZ of the 18th century, to stir Mm -hmm. up anti-Scottish sentiment in Britain. And so... Here, I'm going to do a medium dive into the background of this time to go further into this theory. You ready? Mm -hmm. So once upon a time, England and Scotland were two distinct countries that happened to be situated on the same island. They had different monarchs, different cultures, and somewhat different religions. Scotland was Protestant while England, in spite of Elizabeth I's best efforts, had a significant Catholic population, thanks in part to the efforts of her sister, Queen Mary I. Shout out to episode 6. But when Queen Elizabeth died without an heir in 1603, things got murky. The presumptive heir to the English throne was James VI of Scotland, son of Mary Queen of Scots, not to be confused with Queen Mary I, and Harry Stewart, a.k.a. Lord Darnley. James was Elizabeth's first cousin twice removed on both his mother's side and his father's because they were first cousins to each other and first cousins once removed to Elizabeth, all three of whom were direct descendants of Henry VII, the first monarch in the House of Tudor. Okay, confusing, I know. (laughs) And if you want to see this laid out visually, check out our up notes for a link to this family shrub. And I mentioned some of that just to make note that incest and close relations within a family was not something that only happened in the hinterlands of Scotland. This happened in the royal family. It happened all over the place. Well, James VI thought being monarch of multiple countries would be a hassle. So he decided to merge Scotland and England which at the time also included sovereignty over Wales and Ireland. And he decided to make a new country called Great Britain. Although James's transition and ascension to the throne went smoothly, and he was styled as James I of Great Britain, his desire to join Scotland and England under one monarch, one parliament, and one law wasn't terribly popular with either the English or the Scots. And I imagine the Welsh and the Irish weren't thrilled about any of this either, but that's a story for another time. There was a general distrust of people across national borders, as well as growing tension between Catholics in England and Protestants in Scotland. And just a little fun fact here, so an aside within an aside, 
If you're American and you have ever wondered what the hell British Bonfire Night is, or the significance of Remember, Remember the 5th of November, well, it's related to our boy James here. As I mentioned before, there were tensions between Catholic and Protestant factions during this time. James had been raised Protestant, and although he wasn't purging Catholics like some of his predecessors had done, Catholicism was illegal in England, and they probably justifiably feared persecution. So on the night of November 4th, the eve of the state opening of the second session of James's first English Parliament, Catholic dissident Guy Fawkes, among others, plotted to assassinate the king by planting 36 barrels of gunpowder in the cellars of Parliament. The plot was thwarted in the nick of time, but if it had been successful, it would have likely wiped out the entire Stuart line, including James, his wife, and his sons, as well as most members of Parliament, the supreme legislative body of Great Britain, i.e. most of the British government at the time. So to say people were relieved to have narrowly avoided anarchy is an understatement, and they flooded the streets to celebrate. They lit bonfires, and they burned effigies of Guy Fawkes. And so this is how Bonfire Night slash Guy Fawkes Night was born. So you're welcome. If you, like me, would go to dinner parties and pretend like you knew what the fuck Guy Fawkes was all about, <laughs> now you know the real deal. <laughs> so back to our story. James I was coronated in July 1603, and he became the first Stuart King of Great Britain. And the next hundred years saw the continuation of the Stuart line and the informal union of Scotland and England in spite of continued religious and political strife, which I will not get into here. In the 1690s, Scotland suffered a major famine, sometimes called the Seven Ill Years or the Seven Lean Years. This famine was so widespread that up to 15% of the total population of Scotland died of starvation during this time. That's wild. Isn't it crazy? And some estimates have it as high as 25% of the population in the northern regions. Thousands of rural Scots left their homes in search of food. And within a couple of years, as many as 100,000 people became homeless in search for sustenance. Thousands of Scots emigrated to the U.S., the West Indies, Ireland, and Australia. But even though Scotland and England were theoretically one entity, English poor laws, so-called English poor laws at the time, prevented the Scots from seeking relief with its nearest neighbor and ally. In the early 18th century, or about a decade later, the Stuart line was dwindling with one of the two legitimate heirs being Catholic and the other being Protestant. The Protestants maneuvered to exclude the Catholic son of James II, a.k.a. James VII of Scotland, in favor of his Protestant sister, Queen Mary II. Because she had no heirs herself, the crown was to be passed to a distant relative outside the Stuart line after the death of her husband. And at this point, Scotland essentially freaked out about all of this. It was one thing to have their countries joined when the monarch was a Scot, but it's a whole other kettle of fish when the joint monarch was a rando who was born and raised in Germany. 
So the Scottish Parliament threatened to terminate the union of the crown, which is what they had called this kind of informal union between Scotland and England. Mm-hmm. And the English Parliament was like, oh, yeah. And they passed something called the Alien Act of 1705, which threatened to devastate the Scottish economy by restricting trade. So after the havoc and destruction of the famine, Scotland really had very little leverage and no desire to invite economic ruin. So the Scottish and English parliaments negotiated the Acts of Union 1707, under which England and Scotland were united in a single kingdom of Britain, with royal succession following the Act of Settlement 1701, which is the little piece that mandated that all sovereigns henceforth had to be Protestant. Okay, so aside, 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 but this is all context that theoretically during this time, which is when the first reports of Sonny Bean started to surface in the broadsheets, mm-hmm. it seems very plausible that some pro-British asshole somewhere decided to malign all Scots by inventing Sonny Bean and pushing it out in broadsheets far and wide. We've seen so many times before, Andrew, where the media was used for propaganda and either completely invented a crime or grossly exaggerated and distorted it. Totally. And I think this is also kind of supported by the fact that, little known fact to me, Sawney is actually a really standard nickname for the name Alexander. And around this time and up until the late 19th century, it was used as an ethnic slur in England and Wales against Scottish people. So in a similar way that you might call any Irish man Paddy, Sawney was used as a way to pejoratively describe any Scottish man. I mean, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we we like a good conspiracy theory here. But modern Sawney Bean researcher Sean Thomas says this theory just doesn't hold water. According to him, these broadsheets were full of monstrous stories like Sawney Bean, but they featured villains that were both Scottish and English. And so... He says, what's the point of creating this hideous monster, Sawney Bean, only to have other stories where the hideous monster is some English chap? Mm -hmm. He wrote in his article in the British magazine Fortean Times, quote, the other main suggestion as to why the Sawney Bean story was invented, or at the very least sexed up from a real but far less bloodthirsty event is a more universal and less historically specific one, that the story somehow satisfies a deep psychological hunger for such horrors. In this view, humans share a dark and morbid obsession with murder, cannibalism, and sexualized torture, and therefore we keep on coming up with similar horror stories based on these themes, the ones that frighten and intrigue us the most. The Sawney Bean story is therefore, perhaps, just another inevitable and typical excrescence of our own diseased minds, a kind of psycho-spiritual acne expressed in the form of legend, end quote. Now, there's a world (laughs) in which this is like a fisherman's story, that there was a cannibal killer 
there once was a cannibal killer named Sonny. And you know, <laughs> maybe he killed five people, ten people. Mm-hmm. And as the centuries go, it's actually a whole clan of killers. And mm-hmm. they killed a hundred people. And they killed five hundred people. And they killed a thousand people. So there is a way in which there was an actual... I mean, we know there are serial killers who cannibalize people. So that has happened on on record. So it's safe to assume it happened before record as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And there are even some parallels drawn between Sonny Bean and another mythical figure in Scottish history called Christy Cleek. Now, Christy Cleek was supposedly a man named Andrew Christie, who was a Perth butcher. And during a severe famine in the mid-14th century, he resorted to cannibalism and used his butchering skills on people, essentially. Um, And so there are some parallels here. This story is actually much older. So again, the period when Sonny Bean is supposed to have lived is anywhere between the mid-1400s and the early 1600s. The period when Christy Cleek is supposed to have lived is within the 1300s, so deeply into the Middle Ages at this point. We're not even in the modern era at all, even early modern. It's a lot less well-known story, but it's an earlier one. So it's completely possible that the Sawney Bean was some kind of evolution from this Christy Cleek story. And I think all historians acknowledge that it's possible that this story became embroidered over time from some kernel of truth. I think what brought it into the modern era and gave it its consistency that we see is that inclusion in the broadsheets. Certain facts were related that were consistent across telling each time from broadsheet to broadsheet. But part of the reason that I included that long history about Scotland during this time is the mention of incest um, because it was not uncommon at this time. And it certainly, I don't think, would mark a family with some kind of scarlet X on their back that they would be beyond polite society. It happened during this time. And secondly, that there were periods of famine and really severe ones that pushed even normal non-psychopathic people to cannibalism out of necessity. And so it's very likely that some kind of combination of this was brought out into this modern telling that we have that we see from you know the mid 1700s on it's so interesting i mean and like i've read a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction and that always goes to cannibalism does it yeah i mean with just food resources wiped out and society Mm -hmm. wiped out like people banding together like so many of them it's like cannibalism's on the table so maybe there is some human fear that's just ingrained like a genetic fear yeah and that last bit that i read by author sean thomas it's such a good article and we have it linked in our notes i suggest you go and read the whole thing if you're interested to me that reads like the mission statement of most foul podcasts, right? Is like, we've always said that there is some 
piece of the human psyche that has always been drawn to this. And I do think that it's a way for humans to make sense of the violent and grisly things that happen in the world and have always happened. Yeah. There's going to be a connection to it in next week's episode. Mm. But even thinking of like Hansel and Gretel, mm-hmm. like old, old tales. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's some deep, dark part in the amygdala <laughs> where all of this comes from. But it's rooted, I think, in things that must have actually happened. And, you know, was there a guy named Alexander Bean? Who knows? But was there a guy who was kind of like this on some scale? I mean, I think without knowing a name, we can say, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right? How it's tied to what we think of as modern serial killers and the kind of subset of that cannibal serial killers in modern day, I don't know. Because again... From this story and this time frame, it's hard to say whether this was done because of enjoyment. Certainly, that's how the story is told, that they were sick monsters and they enjoyed they enjoyed it. But also, it's a time of, you know, real concerns about survival. And mm-hmm. it was a thing to die of starvation at this time. And so, you know, it's all very murky, but it's so interesting. Uh, I can't wait for next week to tell you about the culture. Me too. I can't wait to hear about it. Also, I want to call dibs on the band name Psycho-Spiritual Acne. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a good one. I'm glad we decided to do this one. I can't wait to hear what you have found out. Yes. So listeners, next week, you're going to hear a lot about the many pop culture ripples from this story. As always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Don't eat anybody. (laughs) Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 